0: Hi everyone, it's Margarita from People Do You Want to Know podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is a really special one my friend and someone I deeply admire, Margot Twito. Margot Twito is the Carrie Bradshaw of Tel Aviv, truly. Let me read you her bio. Margot is an American Jew who has become a leading voice in Tel Aviv, offering insights into the city's life and dating scene. After a decade of creating content, she blends humor and insight to guide newcomers and locals alike. Margot is the host of Kiss in Tel Aviv podcast, Tel Aviv's only dating, sex, and relationships podcast. She coined the now ubiquitous term Tomer to describe Israeli men, which you may have seen in some memes online. Margot is also an outspoken critic of anti-Semitism, proudly defending her Jewish and Israeli identity while inspiring her community with authentic content. Continuously breaking new ground on social media, she aims to empower and enlighten, reflecting her love for Tel Aviv and commitment to the people of Israel. Margot is our first guest on the podcast, residing in Israel. In this episode, we not only cover her life as a content creator, but also her experience of events in Israel after October 7th. If you don't follow Margot on social media, you definitely should. Her content on Israel is not only informative and eloquent, but also hilarious. She's one of those influencers that I think is really valuable for the Jewish community, so it's a total privilege to have her on. With Margot, there's a lot more than meets the eye. She grew up in America, and her father is Israeli, so we also get to hear a little bit about her experience making Aliyah. Margot is known as the Aliyah Big Sister. When I first met her, she was a team lead for marketing content at Wix.com. She had a demanding corporate career while also pursuing her passion in content creation. If anything, from a selfish standpoint, I had to interview her, as I have a thing or two to learn from her about juggling both a corporate career and content creation. What I love about Margot's content and all these different chapters in her life is that she has a tremendous amount of depth and intentionality in what she posts, and she's not just any content creator. Starting from the ground up, she's been able to attract two very different audiences, Israeli and American, and I'm so excited to share her story with you. Let's dig in. Enjoy this episode of Marg Squared. Hey, Margo.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Listen, I want to start by saying up front that I hope and pray every day for the safe return of our hostages in Israel. I know Israel is going through a difficult time right now and a war, and I thought it wouldn't be right if we started on any other topic. Margo, you are an Israeli content creator. You are currently in Israel. How are you doing? How have things been for you? Tell us about your experience being on the ground in Israel right now.
1: Yeah. Thanks for asking. So it's funny because every time you ask that question here, people kind of give this look like, eh, you know, like, you know, and everybody kind of just says, like, okay. And we're calling it or the new okay, or as as good as you can be, kind of, that's the response that most of us kind of give each other these days. And it depends on the day. I find it really hard lately, especially as an independent solopreneur to self-motivate when dealing with trauma and grief and potentially undiagnosed ADHD. So (laughs) figuring all of that out has been Really challenging and navigating work right now at a time when even major companies are having huge issues, much less individuals. It's challenging. And there's moments when you don't know, you feel guilty if you have a good day, but then you remember that good days help raise everybody's energy and that you have to give our soldiers something to fight for and our hostages something to come home to. And so There are really sad, traumatic days where I feel like I can't put one foot in front of the other. But every single time I feel like that, I just remind myself that Hashem has given me another day and blessed me with this beautiful life and given me these opportunities and this platform. I'm above ground. I'm not a hostage. I'm not a soldier. And I have to do it for them. So that's kind of the only thing that's motivating me right now is just being part of this collective effort to bring our hostages home and support our troops and
0: support each other. Thanks so much for sharing that. I am really sorry for everything that's going on. I couldn't think of a better guest to bring on because I think you understand both Israeli society and American society very well. And that's why your content is able to appeal to both. And it's a great segue for my podcast to bring someone on who kind of straddles both worlds. On that note, let's move on to a lighter question. Tell us about yourself. What do you do and how did you get there?
1: Sure. My name is Margot Twito. I live in Tel Aviv, Israel. I'm a full-time content creator, and I got here after working 10 years in the Israeli high-tech industry, and finally decided to take a leap of faith and do what I always wanted to do, which was try my hand at full-time content creation. For me, that means Instagram, formerly TikTok, and my podcast, Kiss in Tel Aviv. I also do UGC
0: content for brands, social media consulting and kind of whatever comes my way. You run Israel's first dating, sex, and relationships podcast in English. What is that experience like? It's really been awesome. It was always a dream of mine to
1: start a podcast. I was a consumer and still am of many podcasts, and I started to notice a common theme in the podcasts I was drawn to. For example, Call Her Daddy, We Met at Acme, Horrible Decisions, Guys We F'd. They all were amazing, strong, bright, funny women telling stories about their dating lives in New York City. And I thought there is a hole in the market here in Tel Aviv and I'm the one to fill it. So I created Kiss in Tel Aviv at the end of 2019, before we knew that the pandemic was coming. It's been a really fun ride ever since. There have been times when I wasn't as consistent with uploading. For example, since October 7th, I hadn't uploaded an episode until recently. We're now at the beginning of February, so. There have been some hiatuses, but I love it. And it's kind of a diary into not only my life, but a lot of the shared experiences around dating that so many women and men have
0: in Tel Aviv. Any crazy stories that come to mind from your experience during this podcast? There was the guy, I don't know how frank I can get,
1: but there was a guy who openly admitted to me that he enjoyed paying for sex with prostitutes. That was that was a, an interesting experience that I had, and also it's through the podcast that the term tomer was invented. So for anybody listening, if you've perhaps heard of it, I coined the term tomer to describe the archetype of the classic. Israeli guy who likes to hit on just about anyone, but particularly American women. He has a very particular look and way of approaching dating. And that was something that I created on the podcast. And I kind of just kept repeating it throughout the podcast and my social media content. And it was born on Kiss in Tel Aviv. And now it's something that is kind of ubiquitous here in the white
0: city. And how would you say dating American Jews versus Israeli Jews compares? To be honest, most of my dating life as we know
1: it sort of began here in Israel. Although I have dated American guys here in Israel, I didn't date a lot of Jewish guys until I came here. So, the one thing I will say that is an advantage of dating in Israel is every dating app is like J Swipe. You don't, you know, for the most part, 99% of the, the guys on there are Jewish, which can be great if that's what you're looking for. I would say that stereotypically, particularly women from the US or North America or maybe even Europe, have a tendency to see Israeli guys as these machismo soldier types that have a lot more of this sort of rugged appearance and this exotic look about them than We're used to seeing in American guys. It's not to say that American guys aren't attractive or cool. In fact, I really like dating American guys too. They tend to get my sense of humor a little bit more and there's no language barrier, which can be a really nice change of pace from dating Israeli guys. So yeah, I think there's definitely that like sort of soldier vibe versus, you know, the
0: stereotypical pampered American boy. Yeah. As a Ukrainian Jewish person, I feel like dating Israelis is the most suboptimal combination for me because I'm very type A and organized. And my impression of dating Israeli guys is that they're very go with the flow. Like, I'll scope out the vibes next week and see how I'm feeling. Maybe the energy will tell me we should get coffee. And I'm like, no, the energy will not tell you that. That can be a
1: really frustrating cultural experience for anybody dating Israeli guys, women, men, whoever, to get used to. That lizrom, as we say in Hebrew, that there's a very common, it's almost become a joke line that Israeli guys love to send, like, feeling spontaneous or spontanit. I always say, well... Where Are we going bungee jumping? Are we going to fly to a foreign country? Because that to me is spontaneous. But meeting you on the beach to drink lukewarm white wine is not spontaneous. So that's so funny you mentioned that.
0: Yeah, I do wonder what it's like for Israelis who live in America to date American women and how different it might be because I feel like it's not very easy for them either. (laughs) It's like the other side of the coin.
1: I'm sure also in cities like New York or particularly where it's a lot more hustle and bustle. There's there's hustle and bustle here in, in Tel Aviv, but the lifestyle is very by the calendar, by the book, sometimes super type A. So yeah, maybe I should get an Israeli guy on my podcast and, and
0: ask him what that's like. That'd be a good topic. Do you tend to interview guests on your podcast or it's more a retelling of your experiences?
1: It's a good question. I mostly do 99%
0: solo episodes.
1: Recently, in order to sort of avoid talking in circles or repeating myself, I do create outlines for the shows and I have particular themes that I like to hit on every single time. And to be honest, it's my show. I love doing it solo. And I know that bringing guests on is definitely going to help expand the reach, but for now, it's just your
0: girl. I noticed, maybe you have a point of view on this. During the pandemic, there was a lot of like social media rage around dating. If you remember, that's when Meet you came out in Israel and the U.S. Meet You is this Facebook group where at some point it had like 40,000 people in it. And the whole point of the group was for people to meet, to date. And there was like a Meet you college group and a Meet postgrad post-grad group. That's when uh, the show Updating became kind of popular in New York, and that's when Serena Kerrigan, who is an influencer in New York, big on dating, also started growing a following. And something that she talked about, I remember on her platform, was that talking about dating publicly made it very difficult for her to actually date high-caliber men. Because it made men nervous that she could talk about them or it made men nervous that this was a person that was willing to talk about their love life publicly and I don't know if you follow her or not, but at some point she stepped away from posting that content altogether. I don't follow her as closely anymore, but her content has really changed and she has a boyfriend now. But that only really came to her when she stopped talking about dating publicly. And I think she turned to more of an advice-giving lens. Like She would give young women advice around dating, which I always kind of laugh at that because I don't know what puts anyone in a position to give advice ever (laughs) regarding dating. It's always a little funny to me, but... Do you find that running a dating, sex and relationship podcast has an impact on your actual ability to date? Or is that a myth you think?
1: I would say yes and no. First of all, I absolutely idolize Serena Kerrigan. She's one of my confidence queens and I really admire her career just as a side note. And I've definitely noticed that there is a tendency sometimes for guys, if they're familiar with my content in general, not just the podcast, but what I put out on social media, it's very bold and outspoken. And the truth is, it may mean that I have to filter through more people or that I might spend more time solo developing my own life than meeting a huge quantity of guys, but the right ones... Love what I do and aren't, don't have a problem with it. However, they're definitely aware of my public persona and that I speak about dating on many occasions very publicly, and that I'm kind of known for that in Tel Aviv. So I've definitely had guys say, Oh, you're going to talk about me on the podcast? I'm like, The choice is yours. If you want me to speak well, if you, you know, it could be a good. Business card for you, like, Hey, I got a shout out on Kiss and Tel Aviv because I did a good job or not. So, like Taylor Swift says, if guys don't want me to talk about them on their podcast, on my podcast, then they shouldn't do bad things. You know, when she talks about songwriting about the men she's dated, I am a lot more focused on developing my content and my career and my dreams than I am on worrying about what guys who probably aren't a good match for me anyways are going to think about me talking about dating.
0: Yeah. And that's actually the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about. When you and I first met in like 2020, you had been working a full-time corporate career while also doing the podcast. Mm -hmm. And now you've transitioned into a full-time content creator and also doing the podcast. And the content that you create is not necessarily around dating and relationships. You also have the funniest Israel related content. I think I follow right now, especially around events following October 7th. Some of your content is just really necessary and hilarious and people really support it. It's really good. So can you talk about making the transition and this persona that you're building online outside of your podcast?
1: First of all, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I would say that right now, I'm kind of in sort of my... So- I, I really am in my second year, my sophomore year of doing full-time independent work. And it's kind of like your freshman year, you don't know where your locker is. You're not really sure who the people are that you want to become friends with. You need to figure out where you want to sit in the lunchroom and what classes you want to take, all that kind of stuff. So... The first year was very much that awkward freshman stage, and I made a lot of different attempts at, at things that maybe I won't try again. However, I will say that now in, in, in a post-October 7th world, I'm really trying to find what I want my voice to be now. And I definitely have some ideas up my sleeve, but I've really had to sort of reflect on the past year, look at what I really want to continue to do. And also be really sensitive to the fact that I live in Israel, we're currently in a war, and there are certain things that kind of need to be put aside in order to talk about other things. It doesn't mean we always have to make war-related content, but for example, my first episode back was just moving through our lives post-October 7th. So I think the war has also definitely impacted how and what I speak about, both within and outside the podcast.
0: I remember earlier, you had done a trip to some of the sites of the massacres that occurred on October 7th and beyond. It was a trip that you did with a variety of Israeli influencers. Tell us about going to some of these places and having to see these scenes.
1: Yeah. So, trick or warning, I'll just be really honest. I mean, I had been invited to go to Kibbutz Beeri about three weeks after October 7th, and I really went back and forth if I should go or not. That first invite, I declined because at the time, the survivors hadn't even been able to go back to their homes. And it just felt too sacred and too soon to go there. There was also really no guarantee of our personal safety. I mean, at the end of the day, the people who went were fine, but you know, they're still getting active rockets in the South. I just decided it was too soon. And then I got offered to go again about a month later maybe a month and a half. And I got invited to go visit Kibbutz Nir Oz. And at this point, it was the actual survivors who were taking us around their kibbutz and their home. So therefore, it felt a lot more appropriate. And this was something they wanted us to see. And they were ready to talk about and they were ready to show us. I will be completely honest, sensitive matter coming in 321, you could still feel and smell and experience the death And it was unlike anything I have ever, ever thought I would experience. It was kind of like shifting into a different portal. And you could see that hell had opened up that day and visited Earth. And I stood in a room where at least a dozen people were gunned down and just slaughtered. And they hadn't even been able to clean up the blood yet. And that's something that, I mean, I was expecting to see death and I was expecting to look it in the face. But when you see something like that, the sights, the smells, the sounds, um, it's traumatic. And I didn't process it until about a week later. It was Shabbat and I, all of a sudden it hit me and I allowed myself to sort of replay those images in my mind. And I just sat on my kitchen floor and just sobbed for probably an hour and a half straight. So yeah, it was nothing compared to what the people there experienced, but standing in the homes of people who you see their faces on hostage posters all over is unreal. It 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 was so visceral. It was so surreal. And I feel blessed and honored to have been able to go and to be able to show people um, the truth about what happened there. And also, I this kind of sounds weird, but I didn't even want to wear the shoes that I wore again that day because I felt as though they had stepped on sacred ground. and And to wear those shoes again would have just... been weird so I, i keep them but i'll never put those shoes
0: on again i literally have chills from what you said something that i really appreciate about following israelis in this difficult time is the israeli content creators have a completely different perspective on what's going on than we do in america because they're there i think in america the discussion is really around like well let's talk about what's moral here or the casualties or the civilians or should we be carpet bombing gaza and it's a like intellectualized discussion of things from afar Whereas when you actually see Israeli content creators post the reality of being there on the ground, they have a completely different vantage point. It's showing the real grief and trauma of the events that occurred. It's not intellectualizing anything. It's about living in the now, trying to uh, make ends meet. For example, business owners who now don't have jobs because Israel's under war, who are trying to make money or communities that are housing temporarily the people that were displaced because their homes were burnt down. All of these things, it's not an intellectualized discussion of whether the bombing of a hospital was Palestinian Islamic Jihad or the IDF. It's it's a completely different conversation. We don't really understand the severity of what happened unless it isn't people like you that share it the other thought i had when i heard you speak about this is when you go and visit memorials in like poland or germany or ukraine like holocaust memorials they're a little bit obfuscated like there will be a sign and then there will also be a park and kids will be playing in the park or when i went to Babi Yar in kiev There, the whole uh, memorial ground um, was reworked into a park, and children were drawing in chalk on the ground under like mass graves. Israel is the only country that knows how to make memorials for events that affected Jewish people, it's very evident if you go to Yad Vashem, if you go to these kibbutzim, it's a completely different design and experience than any other memorial worldwide. And that's because it's made by Jews, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's in a Jewish land. I have never been to a memorial in another country that makes you feel and see and hear and all the things you just said, like Israel. I, I wish there was more that we could do to create these kinds of experiences in other countries, there is a Holocaust memorial in almost every major city in the US. Mm-hmm. And I've been to all of them because every, every time I travel somewhere that has a Holocaust memorial, I think it's important to go. And you, there are so many Jews in America, and yet the only people that know how to preserve the sacredness, you use the word sacred, the sacredness and the grief, you can only experience that in Israel and and I wish it were different and I don't know how to change it but that's something that's really discounted.
1: I think it's a really interesting point that you're making and I think it's because Israelis live it actively from birth. And what a lot of it's not to say that Jews in the diaspora are not experiencing this war by any means but here in Israel we run to the shelters, we hear the alarms, we're at the kibbutzim, we're at the music festivals. We're living it still every single day. Whereas Jews in the diaspora, with the exception of some countries, it's disconnected. It's a grandparent who survived the Holocaust, or it's someone from a much further away generation that has gone through that experience. It's not someone's firsthand experience. Whereas in Israel, it's it is our firsthand experience. So I think that's maybe why it's told that way by Israelis or by people living here because it's visceral and it's real and it's it's part of life here. Whereas maybe in other countries, it's not as felt.
0: Yeah. And because we represent a really small minority of people in other countries, the narrative I think is just different. In Israel, everyone – and that's what you talk about too. You said – all the dating apps are j because mm-hmm. everyone here is Jewish. Everyone here understands. And that's a huge reason why I have many friends that made Aliyah because they're tired of explaining. They're tired of living in a place where they're a minority and misunderstood and everything is backwards. They don't want to have to ask for time off for every single Jewish holiday. They just want to have it off. Um, and they want ultimately to be seen and understood and live in a society that welcomes people like them. Here, there's
1: no explanation needed. Like you said, the other day I was having a really hard day and there's some days more hard days than others. And I was crying every hour. You still have to walk the dog and you still have to go to the grocery store. But here I was crying on my walk with my dog on a rainy day. And it was very poetic and The tears were coming out of my eyes and the rain was falling from the sky. And I ran into one of my neighbors and we stopped to talk and she just gave me a big, huge hug. And I was like, I'm just having one of those days. And she's like, yeah, that was me yesterday. She was on her way to a job interview and she stopped to like embrace me and hold. And it's just something that if you were to cry on the subway in New York, ain't nobody going to look at you. Ain't nobody going to make eye contact with you. I've been there. I used to live in New York. and here somebody's going to understand what you're going through and probably console you even. So yeah, everybody
0: just kind of understands this collective experience because we all have collective trauma. I will say though, I love that nobody bothers me when I cry in the subway sometimes because uh, in your situation, it's clear why you would cry. Whereas in New York, I don't want anyone knowing why I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> Over my stupid reason to cry.
1: True. It was it was an interesting experience for me because I moved to New York after living in Israel. So I was used to people offering to help all the time. And then that happened in New York and I was just like, nobody cares. I'm anonymous. Like it's it was just such a but I, I totally get that. Sometimes you just need to cry in peace.
0: <laughs> yeah. I also wanted to ask you talk to me about your decision to make Aliyah. You've been in Israel for a while now. How did you decide to make Aliyah? I know at first it was really hard. This is something that you talked about on social media and on your podcast. And when I first met you, you told me you were learning Hebrew and now you speak Hebrew fluently. And I know that because I see you do ads and shows where you speak in Hebrew and your accent to an American Jew sounds flawless, but That's a lot of hard work that you put in to to learn the language. And you weren't just a person who was learning the language. You also work really hard to embrace the culture, which I think sets you apart from other Americans that make Aliyah.
1: I appreciate uh, you noticing
0: those things. I
1: do have a confession that I'm definitely not fluent, but hey, fake it till you make it. That's the the Israeli way. And I think 99% of it is just about... Trying your best to speak with confidence, which depending on the day is not always easy. I still have a lot of difficulty expressing myself. For example, yesterday I was told by the doctor that I had to fax test results and I lost it. And I probably sounded like a bumbling idiot in Hebrew because I was so angry, but I was like, Do you even know what year it is? I have to fax you something. So there's definitely those daily challenges. But back to your original question, I, just, I don't know if I chose Israel or if Israel chose me, but... The decision to make Aliyah, it's funny. I think my parents knew that I was going to end up here before I did. I remember driving along with my dad one time when I was about 12 and he's like, you know, I could see you serving in the Israeli army. And I was like, what are you talking about? And while I didn't ever end up in the army, I did make Aliyah in 2012 when I was 24 years old, I think at the time it had happened after I did. Taglit. I did a birthright trip that absolutely changed my life. And my parents weren't sure if I was ever going to come home from. I did, but then, like a boomerang, I was back in Israel for a five month Masa program. And that was an amazing experience. This isn't an ad for Masa, but it was an amazing way to really integrate myself into life and live here like an Israeli. And I had an internship in high tech, which Opened the door for so many professional opportunities and also social opportunities for me. That's when I fell in love with this place. And at the end of that trip, I was absolutely hysterical. I did not want to leave. I felt like I was leaving a part of myself behind. And, you know, going all the way back to when I was a child, my dad always expressed that we're Israeli and that's our home. And it's ironic because, you know, we're always under attack, but that's where we're the safest and that's where we don't have to apologize for who we are and we don't have to hide and we don't have to be scared again the irony of it all um but i i just feel like an out, i tell people Israelis love to ask olim why did you make aliyah and i truly can say that israel is the love of my life any anybody else who comes along will just be an amazing addition to that really already full partnership <laughs> but israel really is it's a part of who i am and tel aviv too especially is like Carrie Bradshaw to New York City, Tel Aviv is that for me. And Israel is, it's it, it's home. I
0: think it chose me at the end of the day. Did you struggle at first when you moved? How long do you think it took you to get acclimated? Because the cultural shock is huge.
1: I still struggle and that's part of it. The struggle is real, so to speak, as I like to say. When I was telling you about how the doctor's office told me to fax results to them, I literally was like, what is wrong with this country? I was like, am I, am I, did I just become an anti-Zionist in that moment? I'm just kidding, but I was so frustrated and there are still moments where it is so frustrating, whether it's bigger issues like political situations that are currently happening that seem totally futile or tiny little things like cultural differences in dating, you know, anything. I, I, I still struggle. And in the beginning, I think you have sort of that gift of novelty to carry you through some of those experiences and then when it wear when that starts to wear off around the 5 or 6 year mark and you start to really see the underbelly it can be extra challenging because there's things about the the life and and the way things operate here that you can't unsee and that are not pleasant or fun and that ideological reason for making Aliyah sort of, it's 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 obviously still there, but you have to, going back to saying Israel is the love of my life. I hear married couples say every single day, I, I choose to be in this relationship. This is a choice and it is an active choice every single day to be here and to maintain a life here because it is not easy. It is not for the faint of heart and it's worth it, but it's a choice. And some days that choice is harder than others,
0: but it's the best choice ever made. All of my friends that made Ali also say that it's a choice. Maybe this is a customer service rant, but something I noticed, and this isn't specific to Israel. I don't even know if this will go in the podcast, but I it, this thought needs to be externalized. <laughs> it's been bottled in too long. Whenever I go to some other country, if there's an interaction with people from the customer service umbrella, if you ask them a question or you ask them to do something for you, And they can't do it. They don't offer an alternative. They just say no. And that's where the conversation ends. So then I'm in a position where I'm like, well, what about this? What about that? And I'm like, hold on a second. I'm doing your job for you. You should be offering me options, not the other way around. And Israel is superior at at this function. The bureaucracy in every interaction that you have with the government, with administration, like Israel has designed that system of not offering alternatives. And that's the part that just breaks my heart because I think it is the most like un-Jewish thing ever to do that because Jews are the people that can always come out with the clever, you know, solutions or finding the gray area, finding ways to get to a yes. And I don't understand how it's so this bureaucracy is so ingrained in the Israeli culture where it's no, 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 no. It seems very un Jewish to me.
1: Yeah, I definitely have some thoughts on why that is, but I will say at the end of the day, there's this phrase in Israel, I'm sure you've heard like don't be a friar, like don't be a pushover. And I think that that is inherently ingrained in Israeli culture. The second that you admit that you were wrong, you lost. Whatever it is, whether it's a political argument or whether it's talking to someone about returning a t-shirt at Zara, the second you admit that you were wrong, whether you're the customer or the person providing customer support or whatever, you lose. And that's not something that Israelis have the luxury of doing on the grand scale on the on the macro we can't lose if we lose we lose everything if israel loses we all lose the jews lose so it trickles down into the micro where you have to try and and defend what you're doing at all costs. And I think that that's also something that we're
0: used to doing as Israelis. We always have to defend our existence. So maybe that's why. I don't
1: know. It's just a theory that
0: I have. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I think there's like a reckoning happening now because of this mentality. Like you were at the protests around election time in Israel when people were stopping to be like, hold on a second, Maybe we are wrong, but it doesn't mean we lost. We just need to have intellectual integrity about the situation. So I'm worried that this mentality of not admitting that you're wrong is going to bite us. And maybe it has in some way. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens when the dust settles on this conflict and how Israeli people are able to come back together and handle what's next, especially as it pertains to the government.
1: Yeah, I do think to your point that it's it's starting to, to crumble. I mean, there's got to be some adults in the room, you know, that are, I, I, we have to rebuild something at this point. And I think it just takes a lot of these really pivotal, crazy moments for us to realize that. So time will tell. It's a challenge. I never
0: thought about it that way until you brought it up, the whole, if you don't fight back, you lose. Or if you admit that you were wrong, you lose. And now that you say that, I think it makes a lot more sense. And once you kind of accept that, it's easier to navigate the society. But maybe this fundamental belief, this like paradigm will change for Israeli society hopefully in the coming days and months.
1: I hope something
0: changes. TBD,
1: (laughs) I guess we'll find out.
0: (laughs) The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is I think a lot of people don't realize that an influencer is different in their content than they are in how they appear as a human like in the rest of their life. What do you wish more people knew about you that's not captured on camera?
1: Actually, I recently heard somebody say that if you want to find a person's biggest insecurity, all you have to do is look through their social media and it will tell you. And I thought about what that would look like if people were to glean insight from mine. And I think what what people don't understand is that... I'm actually a really sensitive person. I don't mind being strong for other people and showing up and saying things that maybe other people don't know how to say or don't have a platform to say or don't know how to say, whatever. Sometimes I feel like I I have to address every single thing that's going on at, at all times. I, I constantly have people messaging me, talk about this, talk about this, talk about that. And I I can't do it all. I can't, I can't do it all. Um, So I think that people might not see that I'm super, super sensitive. Also, Just how much work it can be to... Be online and to have like parasocial relationships with people who follow me. I know I put myself online and that's what I love, but there are times when, it, especially recently with the war, where I kind of wonder how much do I actually want to be perceived? I recently had something happen to me that put my security at a bit of a risk. And that really has me sort of rethinking about the ways in which I want to publicly share details about my life online. Because everybody thinks once you put your your story online, and you have the chutzpah to to share it with people. Not everybody's gonna like you, but a lot of people are gonna appreciate it. But a lot of people think that that gives them permission to weigh in on your life. In terms of people who criticize, like I really do realize that it's usually people who wouldn't have taken that risk themselves and pe- people who are where you want to be in terms of your career. I'm not trying to say that anybody is below me, but it's never the people that I look up to. We mentioned Serena Kerrigan at the beginning of the episode. She's never going to look at a content creator and say, what a loser because, or they should talk about this or they shouldn't be doing that. She's she's going to say, hey, good for you. Like I know how great this
0: can be. And I appreciate that you're starting and that you're trying. She would actually say that she doesn't consume content at all. She just creates it. She's like, I don't need to see what other people are putting out. I should be putting stuff out. That's what I should care about, making my stuff really good. And that's really the way to do it. Because if you go down the rabbit hole, it's it's vile. Like If you look up Reddit, Serena Kerrigan, what people write about her is absolutely vile. Somebody sent me a Reddit thread about me once. And I vowed I will never, ever, 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 ever look at that platform. Ever. Ugh. I think that really gets lost among all the content. We're, we're talking about real people that are putting their faces in front of a camera all the time.
1: I had something happen to me recently where this young woman was speaking. We met in a particular setting. I, I won't give too much away. And she had spoken to me like we had just met for the first time ever. And I had just met her for the first time ever. But then by the end of this thing we were at together, she asked me, so how's junior? when are you doing another podcast episode, and I'm like that was really weird? like you just pretended like you didn't know who I was, and then you're asking how's my how's my dog and what I am like you just pretended like you didn't know who I was. This is gonna sound really egotistical i don 't mean it that way at all. I love connecting with the people who consume my content and who it makes a difference for, and I love when people approach me and tell me particularly that they listen to the podcast because I have more followers on. Instagram that I do on the podcast. And the podcast you choose to listen to, it's an hour or so long sometimes. And if you know the podcast, then then you've really been paying attention to, to what I'm putting out. So yeah, sometimes there's, just, there's, there's interactions like that where... And I think people may maybe think that I would be different in real life. I hope I'm not. I don't think I am. But also, I live in a tiny city. We might think that Tel Aviv is this big metropolis, but everybody knows everybody. And If you're rude and you're mean, it's going to get around. and
0: That's not cool. Yeah. And in a prior episode with another guest I had, we talked about casting mishaps because he should have been cast for a role that he was perfect for and he didn't get cast. And I just wanted to say, I think it is the biggest casting mishap of all time that you were not cast for Jewish matchmaking.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I was really, really putting... Feelers out to try to get on season two, and then the war happened. And I, I don't think that, that show is going to happen here. Personally, I don't think it would be a very appropriate thing to film. But if it happens again, I am ready. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think it would have been an amazing experience. And if things turned out differently, I, I would love to have to say that I would have been on season two. <laughs> I think that's the only dating show or or reality show I would ever do. to. I, I think they did an incredible job of displaying the diversity of Jewish life. And it wasn't, I thought it was going to be more salacious and more like a Bravo TV show, but I think it was absolutely beautiful.
0: I really like that show. It's very dignified, which like you said, is not the usual with dating shows on TV. It was just really special to see my experience on TV. That's exactly like the guy who's like, I live in my mom's house and have a parting planning business. I just work for my mom, but I want a woman who's hot and blonde and blue eyed, but also Jewish. And I'm like, that's the shit I put up with every day of my life. Everyone be witness to what it's like to date American Jewish men in a major city like Los Angeles, because that's what it is. That guy was Israeli though.
1: I remember him. I made a TikTok about him and I fully called him out for mommy issues and i actually made a whole podcast episode about it you can check it out it's called toxic mamas boys and that was the whole inspiration behind it whether they're american or israeli the 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 mamas boy thing pooh girl there's some oedipus
0: complexes going on there i'll just say that we'll leave it at that <laughs> My mom humbled me so quick. She watched the show too. I asked her to watch it. And she called me up one day and she was like, oh my God, there is a character on the show that's exactly like you. And I'm like, who? She's like, "Danny, the girl with the eyebrows. That's exactly what you're like. That's how you talk about men. And I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) Well, I will say my dear
1: friend, Cindy, she's obviously my favorite character because I know her personally and I think she's just an incredible human. But Danny was also one of my favorites from the show, so... I think I related to that to that persona as well for sure. Well, Miami girl with her eyebrows. I loved
0: her. <laughs> my goal is to get her on the podcast just for my mom. Just so that we can do a true like conversation. <laughs> Cause I feel like we couldn't be more different. Like I'm not a party girl. I don't drink. I also don't have eyebrows. So <laughs> Yeah, you'll
1: have to compare notes if you get her on the pod. I hope you
0: do. Let's manifest it. And what has been the most rewarding part about being an influencer do you think?
1: Sure, it's funny I I personally don't refer to myself as an influencer. I don't care if other people do, but I would say like content creator is usually how I how I identify. And I would say that one of the most rewarding parts of what I do is when people message me and say things like you were able to say what I wanted to say, but couldn't find the words for. There are so many people I look up to in my own life that inspired me in that exact same way. Growing up, listening to Alanis Morissette and Gwen Stefani of No Doubt in the 90s and the Spice Girls and so many other really influential women and feeling, and and just creators in general, feeling like, they said things in a way that I wish I could say or that I wish I had a platform for. And I think that's the most rewarding thing. And also just making people laugh and also pissing off anti Semites, which I'm so glad you asked because I'd love to show you <laughs> available through the link in my Instagram bio, the anti Semite tears mug. I still have coffee in it from this morning. So if you want to really piss off uh an anti Zionist or just Jew hating Somebody in your life, whether it's a colleague or someone in your dorm, pick up an anti Semite tears mug. I'll leave the link in the show notes. I'll send it to you and you can, uh, you can get yours. And um, 18% of the proceeds go to Soldiers Save Lives, helping get tactical gear to our soldiers to fight Hamas. So you can cry all about it and collect
0: the tears in your anti Semite tears mug. <laughs> <L'chaim>. <laughs> that was a perfect ad. And okay, a couple more questions for you. It's going to get deep. Okay. okay. What would you tell your younger self, Margo?
1: If I could say anything to my younger self, I would tell her first that all of these non-Jewish boys that you're tripping over in your early 20s and in your college years and in high school and middle school, don't worry about them, baby girl, because someday you're going to move to Israel and you're going to have wonderful, amazing dating experiences and you're going to meet the sexiest guys alive and you don't need to trip on these frat boys. The other thing that I would say is you're exactly where you're supposed to do, to be. Trust yourself and just know that you're creating a life for yourself that you're really really proud of. That whatever you're going through right now, whatever stage you're at, younger Margo, is leading you to really incredible places and you're going to you're making yourself really proud even if you can't see the progress now. And I would say that to myself today,
0: too. I would say that to 2024 Margo as well. As a solo entrepreneur. How would you say it's solopreneur? solopreneur. <laughs> yeah, you have to ha- keep pushing yourself. Even if you don't see the results of what you're doing, it can be very discouraging. So it's very admirable that you were able to go from this, you know, corporate career to to becoming a full time content creator. It's a risk. It's really hard work. Financially, it's scary. And you made it happen. Thank you. I appreciate that
1: vote of confidence and and uh, encouragement and recognition. Because I'll tell you, I'm I'm particularly right now, and you know anything can change in a moment. And I really am trying to stay like not toxic positive, but like actually positive about things. Considering everything that's going on right now, things are challenging. There's a lot of external things that are, that are taking place and there's systems and stuff that I was working on. And then all of a sudden everything was upside down and everybody's focus changed. So I, I appreciate that. And I know things will continue to work out.
0: So what's nice. next for you? Do you have any exciting projects coming up that you're looking forward to that you can share with us?
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to be back recording,
0: uh, Kiss in Tel Aviv episodes. So be sure and
1: check those out. I'm also really excited about launching sort of a membership community for my, my community. I don't even like to say followers. Virality is no longer my goal. It's chasing nothingness and you're speaking to a bunch of really crazy people especially these days. So what I really want to work on and you can you can stay tuned to my social media to to see how this unfolds is a really special place on the internet where I can share content with my audience but it's vetted through a membership community because as I said before some of my personal security is becoming more and more of a concern and I want to be able to cultivate an audience that is vetted, and that actually really wants to be there and that isn't there because they hate Jews and because they hate Israel. And I want to create sort of a watermelon emoji-free space for my community where they can enjoy more long-form content like daily vlogs and also really helpful informational video content that I don't necessarily know if I want to share publicly on platforms like YouTube at the moment. I've really had to think about my own personal safety and get creative about ways that I share content with my audience. So stay tuned for that. I'm going to be building that out within the next couple of weeks slash months. And I really want to make sure that It's a valuable place. It's our own little corner of the internet. It's kind of going to be like people who want to come to a fun Shabbat dinner with their friends and just talk about our crazy, complicated, beautiful, funny, silly Jewish-Israeli life. And even if you're not Jewish and you're not Israeli, you can still enjoy the content. So stay tuned.
0: That sounds really cool. I'm so excited for you to launch it.
1: Thank you. I figured like if even, even if a small number of my community wants to join. I'll be delighted to have them there. And I'm even thinking of maybe making a very honorary monthly membership fee. So that way it will keep the haters out even more because part of the proceeds will go to the IDF. So if people who are against Israel want to come and watch my content, they'll have to pay and then their money will be going to the IDF in the defense of Israel. So good luck with that. That's really smart.
0: Yeah. What do you hope to see in the future for Israel? And you don't have to talk about it from like a political standpoint, just what you hope to see, you know, among the community that you live in, or maybe among young people, among women who date, you can take this however you want.
1: I hope to see clarity in Israel. I hope to see unity. I hope to see continued resilience I hope to see that the influence of consumerism in the West doesn't completely take over this place. I know that might sound kind of wild, but there is nothing I love more than walking through Shukakama and haggling for fruit and vegetables with an old man who's been standing there for the past 150 years, you know? And I, I love Israel's nitty-gritty edge. Obviously, there's modernity that needs to take place and processes that need to be improved. I don't want Israel to become anything else. I don't want Israel to become America. I don't live here because I want it to be like America. I don't want the glamorization and the glorification of the US to take over this place. And I really think that the war will kind of derail that. A lot of people are pulling back the curtain on a lot of things that are happening in the US that are super anti-Israel and the influence of political correctness, liberal authoritarianism. I think that that's going to prevent a lot of the Westernization, so to speak, of Israel. And that might sound kind of extreme, but I honestly mean it. I don't want Israel to try to become anything that it's not. I just want to see her best self, which is hard to think about right now.
0: Yeah. I hope Israel also doesn't become woke. I agree.
1: Yeah, like every year I see a lot more like, this is a Tel Aviv thing, but I, I see a lot more like Christmas trees and it's not like Russian Orthodox people or Arab Christians or people who celebrate Novigod Christmas trees. It's like regular Tel Avivians who want Christmas because they saw it at a market in Berlin. You know, it's just like, die. If you want Christmas, leave it to the people who actually celebrate Christmas, like our Arab Christian neighbors or people who put up a tree for Novigod, but let's not replace our beautiful traditions with consumerism and social media and TikTok and all of this influence from the outside world. And I know I say that as an American in Israel,
0: I recognize maybe that's a little hypocritical, but that's just how I feel. I am so amazed that you know what Novigot is. I had no idea you knew what that was. So that's really cool. (laughs) Okay, as we wrap up here, wanted to ask you, what's the best way to keep up with you on social? Where can people follow you? The best place to
1: follow me is over on Instagram. My handle is at Margot Explains It All, M-A-R-G-O-T Explains It All. And you can also tune into my podcast everywhere you listen to podcasts. It's called Kiss and Tel Aviv. It's Tel Aviv's first and only dating, sex, and relationships podcast. And I would love if you would listen subscribe and give it a rating. If you felt like it spoke to you, stay tuned for more updates about really awesome
0: community initiatives that I have planned for the future. Thanks Margo. And last question for you, who would you like to nominate for the podcast?
1: I would like to nominate my dear friend and business coach, Harper Sparrow. She's made a huge difference in my life as a friend, as a business mentor, as a coach, and has really helped me along my own solopreneur journey. And she has an amazing story herself. And I think she would be an incredible guest on your show.
0: Thanks for that nomination, Margot. And thank you for doing this. This has been great. I had so much fun. I feel like we could keep talking
1: for hours. I feel like every podcast guest says that, but that this was just so fun to just turn the mic on and have an honest, awesome conversation. And it really brought a lot of joy to otherwise
0: sometimes really dark days. So thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and rate us five stars. Be the first to hear our episodes by subscribing to People Do You Want to Know wherever you get your podcasts. And for exclusive content, Follow us on Instagram at people want know.